Okay, this morning I have with me my friend Savantis Scott Jr. He is a he is a senior at East Kentwood High School and is on the football team, as you can see by his very, very cool team photo. I just I put that out there because I thought it was really cool. And I, had, I got to see one of SJ's games a few weeks ago. It was super fun. Came out on a weekend night and sat in this beautiful stadium, this very impressive stadium, thousands of people. I mean, a lot of people. And the light, as, as the night goes on, it gets dark and the lights come on and there's this really cool atmosphere there. It's super fun. So you can just feel the electricity. So uh, first of all, what position do you play? I play outside linebacker, fullback, running back. Okay, okay, so you smash into people. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so when I was at this game a couple weeks ago, I saw somebody, not from City Life, because this would never happen to a City Lifer, but I saw someone I knew. I went over there, and we were just talking, and the first thing she said to me was, I don't really know much about football. And I said, well, you know, I don't know a lot about the ins and outs of it either. And then she said, so are there quarters? And I'm like, oh, I do know, I know more than you do. So, uh, yeah, let me, let me help you a little bit. She was a band mom. You know, so she's a band mom. It's just okay. But anyway, if you had to explain the object of the game, what is the object of the game when it comes to football? So the object of the game is to trust your brothers, to go out there and play your hardest and just score up. Just keep scoring more than the other team and just dominate. Just go out there and dominate. Go out there. Go get it. Make some points. Collect those points. Yes, ma'am. Get that winning score. Homecoming was this past Friday night, the homecoming game, and it was a big... Big win. Big win. Big win. Super fun. And SJ had the homecoming dance last night, and here he is at church, both services this morning. Super proud of you. Way to go. I know you seek to live out your faith at school and on the team, and super proud of you for that. Thank you so much. So my next question for you is, what is your favorite part of playing football? I didn't, we didn't script this, so first service I was a little surprised, but yeah, this is great. My favorite part of football is just hitting people. I just love hitting somebody. Just love just going out there, just blowing somebody up. Just, I don't know, it's just, I just feel like when I hit somebody, I just like, I got like this little superpower of like strength or something, I don't know. It's <laughs> Which is why you're in the position that you're in, right? Yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. Okay, so when you're out there in this big stadium, with under the lights, with all these people watching, th there's some pressure. There's some pressure. It's not like it's just you playing with the team and you focusing on your opponent. You're, you're playing the game, focusing on the opponent with people watching you. What is that like? How do you handle that pressure? How do you, how do you mentally prepare yourself to handle that? So we just, you know, we pray over safety over everyone and we just really just key in on what we got to do on the field and everything. But, you know, I look to my peers in the stands. I just thank everyone that comes there and just I kind of block it all out. It's just I see the crowd, but, like, it's just they're not there to me. It's just. Got to focus. Yes, focus, ma zone it out. Yes, Keep your eyes on the prize. Focus on the mission. Yeah. Reach that goal. Yes, ma'am. Okay. My last question for you then. So there are a couple different places, there are a couple different movements before you get from the bench to playing on the field. So you've got, you've got your bench where you sit when you're not playing, right? Yeah. And you've got the field where you are when the game is happening. But six feet in from the field is a place where the officials go, right? Only the officials can go in that spot, space. And then there's another six-foot section. And who, who goes there? 
the, the, the people who are going to play, right? Yeah, 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 there's a little spot where you stand by the coaches and, yeah, you just got to stay by their coaches and just, yeah. So, so when, the coach, when the coach is pulling you off the bench, yeah. he says, hey, you, come here, and then you go into that strip right there. Yeah. And you're in that space between the bench and the game. And the coach is looking at you, and the coach says, okay, you're up next to play. Now, what you told me when we were talking earlier, you said, this is a special place. It is. Yeah, tell us a little bit about, like, this place before you're getting ready to go on. So as you just stand there and the coach is talking to you, it's just, like, so hard to focus because you're just like, I'm really going, I'm about to go out there and play. So it's just, like, it's really hard to focus, but they really tell us three things, you know, execute, play hard, and have fun. They just tell us those three things and just, you know, give us a nice pat on the helmet and go out there and play. So it's just, we just trust those three words. They gave us trust to go out there, so we just got to show it on the field, so... Yeah. Off the bench, to the sidelines, into the game. Yes, ma'am. Awesome. Thank you, SJ. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks. The Christian life is kind of like a game. There's an object of the game. There's God as the coach. There's us as the players. There's a point that we're all aiming for. There are rules of the game that we have to abide by. There are boundaries that we play within. And there's a way that the score is kept. There's an opponent that we're working against. There are plays that we execute together. And we listen to the coach and we execute his plays. So you've got players on the field. You've got players on the bench. And you've got players on the sidelines who are waiting to go in, waiting to be sent in by the coach. And today we're looking at a man in the Bible by the name of Moses. And Moses is a person who for 40 years has spent his life benched. And in the passage we're going to look at today, God has called him off of the bench onto the sidelines, and God's speaking to Moses, grabbing him by the helmet, shaking him up a little bit, and saying, Moses, it's time for you to go out there. So we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 3 and 4. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up to that. We'll be going to that in just a moment. Otherwise, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. Here's a little bit of background about Moses. Moses was a Hebrew, part of the Hebrew people. This is um, ancient Bible times kind of stuff. The Hebrew people were living in Egypt and were enslaved by the Egyptians. Pharaoh is the Egyptian ruler, and Pharaoh was threatened by how many babies the Hebrews kept having. They're like, the numbers were just keep growing and growing and growing, and Pharaoh was threatened by that. And so he said, not only are they our slaves, but we actually kind of need to, you know, cripple them, handicap them in some way so that uh, they can't be so powerful. And so uh, Pharaoh said, there's a rule that all of the Hebrew boy babies have to be thrown into the Nile River. Can you imagine? It's just awful, just awful. So long story short, Baby Moses gets born, and his parents could just see there's something special about this child. These parents love their son. They don't want to do this. And so they hide him for a few months, and then when he's a few months old, his mother makes a waterproof basket, and she doesn't throw him into the Nile exactly. She puts him into the waterproof basket and sends him down the Nile, where he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, I can tell this is one of the Hebrew babies, but she has compassion, and so she adopts Moses as her own child, brings Moses into the Egyptian palace, and Moses grows up in a life of royalty. He is educated. He probably would speak multiple languages. He's trained. He's literate, which is why we have some of the books of the Bible that we do. He had that ability, but as Moses grows, 
as he gets older and older, as time goes on, he realizes he doesn't really fit anywhere. He's not really Egyptian royalty. He's not really part of the Hebrew people in the same way. He stands alone. He's a misfit. He's an outsider. He just doesn't fit anywhere. And as he sees his Hebrew people being mistreated by the Egyptians, over the years, his, his anger, his righteous anger about this grows and grows, and the sense of social justice raise, rises up in him, and he wants to do something about it because they're his people, but he can't because he doesn't have that kind of influence in Egypt. So one day when Moses is an adult, the, the New Testament tells us he was about 40 years old when this happened, one day when Moses is an adult, he takes matters into his own hands. He sees an Egyptian brutally beating a Hebrew, Moses looks both ways, he thinks nobody's looking, and then Moses murders this Egyptian. Moses' secret is discovered. The Egyptians are mad at him, and the Hebrews aren't too happy with him either. He's broken laws, his life is threatened, and Moses flees from Egypt. He runs and runs. And he ends up in a desert city called Midian, where he spends the next 40 years of his life. And he goes from a life of Egyptian royalty and all the tensions and privileges and burdens that that brought, and ends up in Midian. He finds a wife, he marries her, he has children, and Moses becomes a shepherd. Ordinary life. And for 40 years, he lives as a shepherd in very humble circumstances, thinking that his life is pretty much done. And that brings us to our passage today. Moses is about 80 years old, definitely out of the game, definitely not playing right now. And today's passage is the account of God going to bench Moses and saying, hey, Moses, I'm calling you off the bench. And he calls Moses up, and he says, Moses, I've got a plan. Here's the game plan. Here are the next moves. Listen up. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Moses is shepherding. He goes to the far side of the desert. Exodus 3, verse 2 says, There in the desert, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord then goes on to describe this new life, 
this new, whole new restoration of things. And the Lord describes it's going to be a good place to live. There's freedom. You will be developed as a people. You've been in, enslaved for so long, but I'm going to show you what freedom was like and how, what it looks like to be my people under freedom. And so God's giving Moses this incredible news that for so long the Hebrew people have been enslaved, but God is coming to do a miraculous deliverance, to pull them out of slavery, to do an international trip, to take them into a whole new place and give them a whole new life. It's an incredible amount of good news. And everything about this sounds great. Everything for the Hebrews is going to change. But then God throws in this one little thing in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord says to Moses, so now, Moses, go. I, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. And I imagine at that moment Moses saying, whoa, I thought this was good news, but what? It's moments like this that I think we, we see Coach God <laughs> calling Moses off the bench and saying, all right, Moses. He grabs Moses' helmet. He holds on to that face shield, and he shakes up a little bit. He's like, and you're it. And Moses says, whoa. I like the deliverance part. I like the you rescuing everybody part, but I'm not the right person. Moses here has some concerns. He's concerned about the player in the game, him. He's concerned about the coach, God. He's like, God, I don't know about this. He's concerned about the crowd, all the people who would be watching to just watch him fail. And he's worried about his own lack of confidence. Moses has questions. Questions that he's asking as he stands on the sidelines. The first question Moses asks is this, who am I? Who am I to do something like this? Who, who am I to have God have me do something like this? I'm not that guy. So God gives Moses this glorious new information, and in verse 11, here's how Moses responds. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I'm the wrong guy, God. He says, I'm a nobody. He says, I'm a has-been. Maybe he said to God, God, I've got a record. They want to kill me there. God, I don't belong there. It's not my, it's not my life anymore. It's not my vibe anymore. I don't do that anymore. God, I'm, I'm not that special. Moses really doesn't even know who he is. He really hasn't ever known who he is. He's just known that he hasn't been the Hebrews and he hasn't been the Egyptians. He's not been this, he's not been that. He just knows what he's not and he's never fit. Moses doesn't know his true identity. But see, true identity isn't found in your people group. Your true identity isn't found just in your cultural heritage like for Moses. It's not found in your career, whether you are in royalty or you are a shepherd or whatever you do, your true identity isn't found in your career, although some of us act like it is. Your true identity is not found in your relationship status. Maybe you're single and you're really wanting to not be single. Your identity is not to be found in another person. That is never going to help you. 
Your identity is not to be found in your physical appearance. You're not going to find satisfying meaning. If, if that becomes who you think you are, you, you will be lost. Your identity is not to be found in how much money you make or in what kind of neighborhood you live in or don't live in or where you live at all. Your identity isn't what sports team you support, except maybe today it matters a little bit. Um, Pastor Phil's identity is clearly tied up with the Lions. <laughs> we, have, we have had some interesting conversations in the staff over the last week or so, and I just want you to know that different staff members have come to me secretly with their plans of how they're going to try to thwart Pastor Phil from winning the tailgating competition. I have kept those secrets. I'm a vault. Just warning you, Pastor Phil. Your identity isn't found in the brands you wear, the brand you promote, what you're influencing people toward. That's, it says something about you, but it's not who you are. Your identity is not part of whatever club you affiliate with, whatever political party you're convinced is really the right one. Your identity isn't found in who your friends are. All these things say things about you and, and say some things about you, but they don't, it's not who you are. And the thing is, is you will never fully know who you are until you first know who Jesus is. As human beings, all humans, humanity was designed in the image of God. God created humans in his image. That means there are some things that are, that are like him, that are connected to him, and will never fully be ourselves until we know God. That's kind of the irony of the whole thing. It's not until you give up all of those other things that you think define who you are, and you reach out to God to have him make him who you are, and then you kind of discover with this amazed look on your face, Actually, this is more me than I ever thought I would ever be. Without Christ, we are outsiders, as, as Moses is described in the Bible, a stranger in a strange land. But with Christ, we have belonging, we discover our true personality, our true passions, our true types and our true styles, our true giftedness, our true calling, our true purpose. And sometimes, church, God calls us out of, off the bench and into the sidelines. And we get to the sidelines here, and, and we don't leave the sidelines because we have no idea who we really are. SJ was like, this is my position that I play. Some of us have no idea. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I do. I don't know who I am. I don't, I don't understand who I am in relation to this game. None of, some of us have no idea who God has made us to be or what our potential is, what our purpose is. So Moses brings this question, and this is how God responds in verse 12. And God said to Moses, Moses, I will be with you. Moses, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He says, this is going to be a sign. You're going to come back here. You're going to come to this mountain, this very same one, and you're going to remember that I said this to you, and then you're going to know. 
So Moses here is all like, oh, I don't know. And God over here is, God's all excited at this point. As this conversation goes on with Moses, God is like this coach who's super enthusiastic about what's gonna happen next to the team. And God's really excited. He says, Moses, this is good news, and I picked you. And Moses is like, oh, not good news. And God says, no, really, it's gonna be good. I'm gonna go with you. And then Moses, this is gonna go on. Moses is gonna have a question, and God's gonna say, okay, here's an answer. And Moses says, I've got a question. And God says, okay, here are my answers. This, goes, this is gonna go on like four or five times before God kind of gets a little bit annoyed toward the end. But at the moment, God's still kind of happy and is just slapping on the shoulder saying, hey, Moses, this is it. I'm going to be with you. You're going to come back and it's going to be good. See, God's response, I will be with you. The difference in having your identity rooted in Christ is that you know that God is with you and you are with God. You know who you are and you know whose you are. You know your identity is connected to who God is and who God has made you to be. Listen to what the Bible says about the identity of, of people who have given their lives to Christ. If you are a Christian, this is what the Bible says about your identity. 1 Corinthians 6 says, He bought you with a price, so you belong to him. You aren't your own. You've been bought by God. You're his. Romans 8 says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your condemnation has been dealt with, and God is for you. He's bringing goodwill toward you. Romans 8 says you can't be separated from God's love. It doesn't matter what you do. He loves you. It, it does matter what you do, but it doesn't change his love for you. His, his love for you does not change. 2 Corinthians 1 says that you are established anointed, sealed by God. Do you hear the confidence and the steadiness and the commitment there? Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Your identity is rooted in the purposes of God that are at work in your life in ways that you can't even see. 2 Timothy 1 says that you have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And so your identity as a Christian is when that kind of fear comes, that is not who God has designed you to be. His way is power, his way is love and a sound mind. That's the identity he's forming in you. Speaking of which, I have to say that we sang that no longer a slave song this morning. You remember when we sang that? that the worship team didn't plan that. They just like pulled that up out of the middle of nowhere. And I mean, way to go band at pulling that off. Super impressive. But, but, it, but God has a plan for us. He has mercy. Hebrews 4 says that we can find mercy and grace in our time of need. That means in your identity search, you have needs, but the mercy and grace of God is available. It, 1 John 5 says you're born of God so the evil one can't touch you. John 15 says, I've been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. Your identity is connected to God's purposes in this world. And finally, Galatians 2.20 says that if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been crucified with Christ. And you are no longer living for yourself, but Christ is living in you and through you. The life you live in this body, you now live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself up for you. That is who you are. So Moses says, who am I? And God says, let me speak into your life. Let me tell you who you are in me. Well, this isn't good enough for Moses. Moses has question number two. Question number two, said, his question is, who are you? 
Who are you, God? Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I, suppose I do, God, suppose I do what you say. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell him? I'm not really sure, God, who you are. I've seen you in the fiery bush, and like I just had this like moment with you that's kind of cool, this like bush that doesn't burn up, but how are they going to know who you are? Sometimes, church, we stand on the sidelines and we debate about jumping into the game because we know who God is, kind of. We just really forget the depths of his power. He already knew that this was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He already knew that this is the God that he's been taught about, the God that his ancestors worshipped. He, he already knew some things about God, but despite that, he's, he says, I don't think I really do know you yet. And sometimes we get stuck on the sidelines because our view of God is too small. We think, God, nice meeting you in the fiery bush, but I don't think you're strong enough to help me get out into the game. God, um, I know you're, pow you're powerful enough to do this bush that, this burning bush that doesn't burn up, but I don't think you're strong enough to protect us from Pharaoh and to deliver us out of Egypt. God, I know, you're, I know you gotta be pretty smart, but I think I might be smarter than you in this situation. You don't, you don't actually say those words to God, but you act it. God, I don't know if you really know best. God, I don't think this is such a good idea. See, we don't really know who God is in these moments. We get stuck in our own questions. We limit God. We shrink him down into a human-sized God that we, can, that we can understand. So he's like, what should I tell, what should I tell them, God? Who are you? In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. God's really trying to help Moses here. <laughs> he says, here's my personal name, my personal name, I am. And, and in, case, in case they need a little clarification, I'm the God of your ancestors, the one you've heard about, the, one that's been, the name that's been passed down from generation to generation. Your forefathers knew me, the ones that they, I'm the one that they talked about. And God goes on to give him lots of information, which God doesn't usually give lots of information, but he's given lots of information to Moses. He's like, this is who I am, you need to know. We have got to remember who God is and the power that God has to take us to wherever he's calling us to go. In the New Testament, I love this picture that reminds us of the power of God and who he is and has been in our lives. It comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 through 18. 
And it reads, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Some of you would say, I know God has rescued me from the dominion of darkness. I know God has pulled me out of my Egypt. I know God has pulled me out of my slavery. But then sometimes we forget that he also can help us for what's next after that, right? We, we, we trust him to pull us out of our, our past, but will we trust him to take us into the future. We trust him to take us off the bench. We trust him to take us into the game. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The supremacy. This is the God that we sang about today. This is the God that some of you are trying to follow in your lives. This is the God that we are trying to worship. This God who is before all things. The God, this God who in him all things hold together. It's this God who has the supremacy. And so when Moses says, but God, who are you? Are you strong enough to do these things? He says, I am the supremacy. Moses still isn't satisfied. <laughs> He's got another question. Question number three. He says, all right, I've talked about, I, I'm wondering who, who I am, who you are. What are other people going to think? All of those thousands of people under the Friday night lights, what are all these people going to think? Exodus chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say, the Lord did not appear to you? He said, what if, what if they doubt me? What if, what if I do, let's just say I do get up my courage to speak. And let's just say that I do speak, but then they don't believe me. Then what's going to happen? See, Moses is in a bit of a vulnerable situation. I mean, try to see it from his perspective. He's supposedly going to go back to the country that he ran for his life, from his, for his life from, and he's supposedly going to try to lead literally thousands of people who are in bondage away from their enslavers, good luck with that, and take them on an international trip to somewhere that they've never been to before. It's kind of a tall order. And, and I can imagine Moses thinking here, hey, God, you know, it's, it's one thing for you and me to kind of have this, like, spiritual moment here, this burning bush moment, this connection between the two of us. But now you're asking me to take it to the playing field where people can watch, have opinions. Cervantes, do people ever have opinions about how you play? 
And now God's asking him to make it public. And sometimes, church, we stand on the sidelines because we're just afraid people aren't going to understand. We're like, oh, I can talk. I, I, I don't really want to talk to people about God because, you know, that's pushy. I mean, if they really understood, then, you know, then they'd like it, but they're probably not going to understand, so I'm, I'm not going to talk about my faith. I'm not going to try to talk about God with people. I, I'm just going to kind of keep that here. I'm not going to try to convince other people. See, Moses is in the position where he's supposed to convince other people that God spoke to, them and he, to him, and he's trying to convince other people that God has a plan for their lives. He's trying to convince other people that God wants them out of slavery and has a whole good new big life in this whole big game that that God wants them to be part of too. He has to go to try to convince them of that. And a lot of times we get stuck on the sidelines and God's like, I want you to go convince some people of some things. And you're like, not feeling it, God. So God says, okay, I'm going to help you. Moses, I'm, I'm going to help you. I, I, can, I can understand your concern. I'm going to give you a few signs so that people can understand that I really have spoken to you and these signs will be proofs that I'm, I'm active in doing something. So that's Exodus chapter 4, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took hold of that snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is that they they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses puts his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow, leprosy. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they might believe the second. But, chapter 4, verse 9, but if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, we have this staff that gets turned into a snake. Snakes were very important symbols in Egyptian culture. In fact, here's a picture of Pharaoh up here. You can see on his headdress, there is a snake at the very front of his headdress. It rested right up here on his forehead. And so when God is telling Moses, you are going to turn this to a snake, you're going to grab it by its tail. You don't pick up snakes by their tails because then they can come back and bite you. You grab them by the close to the head. But God says, grab him by the tail. And it's it's this picture of Moses has Pharaoh by the tail. God is more powerful than Pharaoh. Then there's the whole leprosy thing. And leprosy was a term for a variety of skin diseases and also things that could happen, like mildew and the rot and things that could happen on objects. It, It covered a whole variety of things. But it's a general medical term that showed that, and what God is doing here is, is showing that the health of the body can be taken away and the health of the body can be restored again by God. That God has the power to inflict or God has the power to save according to his will. Again, a picture of God is more powerful. The third sign, water into blood. The Nile River, obviously an important thing in Egypt, 
And the Nile River was, one, one Bible scholar wrote that the Nile flowed with the blood of innocent Hebrew victims. Babies who had been thrown into the river. People who had, been, who had died at the hands of their enslavers. And Egypt's mighty, e- Egypt believed in the god of the Nile. The Nile was one of their gods. And so here we have this picture of the Nile this God that was worshipped and this place that flowed with blood. And here we have this confrontation of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I'm more powerful. I'm more powerful. When you're in the position, feeling the pressure of what others might think, facing the worries about the criticism that you might encounter, when God's calling you to speak up on his behalf, when he's calling you to engage in that way, sometimes we just feel weak and powerless and worried like Moses. And we think, what are people going to think? What am I going to say? The Bible says that if you are a believer in Jesus, that when you are made new in Christ, that you have access to the Holy Spirit of God and that the Holy Spirit of God comes and begins to live in you. And as you nurture and grow and give space for the Holy Spirit to do more and more in your life, the Holy Spirit will have a deeper and a stronger and even more rooted presence in you. And Acts 1 verse 8 says that if you you are a follower of Jesus, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be God's witnesses. You want to, if God's calling you to speak, you need to know it's not about you being good enough at it. It's not about you being able to convince everybody to come along with you. It's about you be faithful. You be faithful. And God will give the kind of power that he wants to give in the way he wants to give it, and he will speak to who he wants to speak, and he will use you how he wants to use you. But it's his determination on, on what he gives you. You just be available, and you let him do what he wants to do. God is powerful And that power is given to God's followers. I also love this passage in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. I love this part. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Why, why, Why do you have this kind of hope? Why do you have this kind of faith? Well, let me tell you. God is strong, and God is good, and God's working out a big game for the restoration of all things. Well, Moses has asked most of his big questions, and now we start to get to the heart of the matter. What's really at the core of Moses' resistance? And it comes here in the fourth question. He says to God, what if I'm not good enough? Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He says, I've never been good at this sort of thing. You want me to convince Pharaoh? You want me to walk over to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, tell the people to go? And you want me to convince the elders of Israel that you're moving? God, I'm not good at this. God, I have never been good at this. And even though you're talking to me right now, I can tell I haven't had a miraculous change. I'm still not good at this. This has always been my weakness. 
And the Lord says a very interesting thing in verse 11. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who gave you your mouth, Moses? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. The Lord says, Moses, that mouth that you have is the mouth I gave you. Moses, now quit that complaining you're doing with that mouth that I gave you. Get off the sidelines and get into the game. I will help you. Sometimes, church, we stay on the sidelines and we won't move because we are too busy telling God why we can't do it. I'm limited. I'm bad. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I don't, I don't have all these things. And God, you know what God says to you? He says, I know your limitations. I know your limitations better than you know your limitations. And yes, you are limited. But God says, I don't need your talent. I need your trust. I don't need you to be some greatly skilled, if you want skills, great, but that's not the first thing I need. The first thing I need is your trust. I know your limitations, and I still have a plan to get you off the sidelines and into the game. Now throughout the Bible, we see people asking the question, God, am I good enough? And all throughout the Bible, the answer of God to people is the same. No. (laughs) You're not. You're just not. But God said, I'm not asking you to be God. I'm not asking you to work miracles on yourself. I'm asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to listen to the instructions of the coach to get in the game and then see what the coach can do for you. Because once that coach is coaching you and you start responding to the coach, something's going to happen. All through the Bible, the answer is no, you're not good enough. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous. Not even one. Maybe we could change the wording for the concept and say, there is no one who's good at these things. There is no one who has power on their own. There is no one who's really good enough to play that game. But God says, I've made arrangements for that. I have an arrangement. And this arrangement had to do with my son Jesus coming to earth, God in human flesh, and presenting himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Presenting himself, taking on all of the sin of the world on himself, and being himself sacrificed so that we could be forgiven for our own sin. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 says we, are, we have confidence, we have confidence, we are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It's not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Our qualification comes because the coach says, I count you, I count you in, and it's time for you to go. Romans 5.1 says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This is where some of the mystery comes in. This is where 
the big cosmic game, this big epic game that God is working out, that he's been doing from history, from the very beginning of history to today and into the future, this epic cosmic game that God is working out. This is where it's different from a human football game. There's an element of mystery. There's an element of faith. And we're not always going to understand everything. This is where the mystery piece comes from, and it takes our trust, where we look at the coach and we say, Coach, I, don't, I can't see all the plays that you see, but I believe you. Coach, I don't see in me what you say is there, but I realize that the best thing for me to do is to act on it. So this whole conversation with Moses and Coach God happens in this little strip of the sidelines. God's called Moses off the bench after 40 years of being benched. He says, okay, Moses, let's go, let's go. Grabs him by the helmet, shakes him up a little bit, knocks him on the side of the head. All right, Moses, let's go, and I want you to go. And he gives him a little swat on the rear and says, go get him. Coach says, it's time. You're going in now. And the player says, I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure. What about this? What about that? I I know me, and I don't think this is going to go. And the coach says, I know you better than you know you. I designed you. I made you, and I know the capability I see in you. I understand this game. I've got the big picture. I've got a view from way up high. I can see the whole thing. I can see the whole big picture. I've got the game strategy. I know the plays that need to be completed. I've got it all planned out. I know exactly what needs to be done. And I've chosen my team, and I want you. I've chosen my team, and it's time for you to play. You've been, you've been out of the game. You're holding back. You're standing on the sidelines. You're not jumping in for some reason, but I want you. I've picked you, and it's time. The boos and the cheers of the crowd mean nothing. You focus on me. You listen to me. It's time for you to go. And the player says, I just don't think I'm good enough. And coach says, you're not, but I've got you. And because I've got you, I've got this. And then he releases the player and says, let's go. And Moses steps back, turns around, and he goes back to the bench and sits down. Which takes us to the last verse of the day today, Exodus 4.13. But Moses said, Lord, send someone else. Some of us aren't in the game. We've stepped out. We're on the sidelines. Maybe you're mad about the rules right now. You don't like them. Maybe you're just wallowing in insecurity. Maybe you don't know who you are. And the coach wants to say, let me me remind you, let me tell you who you are. Give, Give up all that other stuff. Maybe you don't know the coach well enough. Because if you get to know the coach, something's something's gonna change. Maybe you're on the sidelines 
and the coach is, is grabbing you by that helmet saying, okay, I've got a play for you to make. It's time for you to jump in. It's time for you to come. I've made arrangements for your limitations. I've got other people to help cover some of those weaknesses, and I've got some supernatural power I'm going to be dumping on you because that's just what I want to do. God's like, I got this part. I don't need your talent. I need your trust. Let's go. And I wonder, church, if you have been on the sidelines about something. On the sidelines about something. Maybe you're, you've been pulled off the bench. God's pulled you off the bench, and he's, he's, he's bothering you about something. And there's a play you need to go make. And God says, I'm holding it for you. And you're going to have to make a decision. Will you go back to the bench like Moses did? Or will you go into the game? Today's a day for you to, to take that thing that the coach is bugging you about, that next assignment, that next level he's calling you to, that thing that you're resistant to, the thing you don't feel good enough to deal with, the thing that just doesn't make any logical sense to you, that thing that you know God's calling you to that's next. Today God's inviting you to step off the sidelines and go into the game. Would you bow your heads with me? How many of you, just by lifting your hand, would say, God's calling me to a next level move. I think I know what it is, and I just, I think I need to say yes. If that's you, just lift your hand. I'm on the sidelines in this in-between place, and I've got a decision to make on which way I'm going to go, into the game or further away. Maybe some of you have never played God's game before, and you're like, all right, this is it. I'm ready. Maybe some of you have been playing for a while, but you, you pulled out, and God's like, hey, I've got something next for you. Lord God, you are working out a big, epic, beautiful thing. It's so big. It's hard for us to get perspective. But you have the perspective of someone sitting on the highest seat of the bleachers in the stadium. You see the whole thing playing out. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God of yesterday, the God of today, the God of the future. You are the God who created us, who designed us in your image. You are the God who has in a, an incredibly, incredible gift. You're, you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we can have your Spirit dwelling in us, making us new, reminding us of who we are and whose we are, and empowering us for things that we aren't yet good at doing. And so today, God, we just say, all right, I'm in. And for those who are in that place today, I ask, Lord God, that for any doubts that would come their way, any second guessing that would happen, I pray that they will have strength and faith to resist those things and to go strong and steady into the calling that you are putting on their lives. Pull us out of the darkness and into your light. Pull us out of the old and into the new. Pull us off of the sidelines and into the game. 
Amen.